0: If you are a regular listener to my podcast, I'm sure you're aware that the human body is a rich ecosystem, and a lot of biology, chemistry, and physics is happening inside of it all the time. Yet, I have only once talked about chemistry that happens in any of the body fluids that our bodies call their own. FYI, that was the episode about why bread tastes sweet. Or some contents of saliva stars in heavily. Quite frankly, this is an oversight that cannot be tolerated. So with this episode, I will begin to rectify this by first looking at a body fluid that we're all aware of and many of us have trouble looking at. I'm talking about blood. However, because blood is, like most other body fluids, a very complex mixture of things we will focus on the chemistry that is used by red blood cells to let them do what they do, namely transport oxygen to the cells in our body from the lungs and to take carbon dioxide back out of the cell. This topic and many others came out of an email exchange that I had with one of my listeners, Victor from Sweden, to whom I'm very thankful for the great chat and the many new ideas for episodes, actually. Very cool chat, very cool dude. This is a shout-out to you, Victor. Thanks a lot for the chat, man. Really, really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. My name is Johannes Vogel, and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, my podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids, or solids. And believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us at this very moment. As I mentioned before, blood is a complex mixture. A big chunk of it is water. But there's also a variety of compounds found in there, from blood plasma and the various blood cells, as well as other proteins, glucose, electrolytes, hormones, carbon dioxide, and so on. Our arteries and veins make up the primary highway for shuttling things around the body, and one very important part of it are the red blood cells, or if you want to do the fancy talk, the erythrocytes. With roughly 20 to 30 trillion red blood cells in an average human being, these biconcave discs are the most abundant blood cells found. And if you're wondering what biconcave means, imagine a flat and round disc of a certain thickness, and then press inward onto the center of the disc from both sides, so that the outside rim of the disc is thicker than the inside. That is a biconcave disc. The erythrocytes' main job is to bring oxygen to the various tissues in the human body, like muscles, the brain, the liver, kidneys, lungs. They all need oxygen. Why? Oxygen plays a key role in the production of ATP, the body's energy currency that keeps us breathing and our muscles working around the clock. So how do the erythrocytes do it? How do they get the oxygen from the lungs to the different tissues? Somehow, they must bind the oxygen to themselves and then release it in place. The answer to that question lies in a molecule that you can find about 270 million times in every red blood cell. Every single red blood cell. I am talking about a protein called hemoglobin. A so-called metalloprotein. Uh, Why the fancy name? Because at its core, hemoglobin contains iron. Not in its metallic, neutral form, but as an ion that has lost two electrons. These iron ions will shortly become very interesting to us. For now, just to keep you guys interested, can you guess what color iron 2 plus has or is? Unsurprisingly, it's typically red. Before we move on to talk about hemoglobin, iron, and how this combination transports oxygen, we need to have a short look at some chemistry that is quite special, quite exciting, and sometimes quite surprising. You see, binding metals to organic structures, organic structures being molecules mainly consisting of carbon and hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen, and then sprinkling with some phosphorus and sulfur, So, binding to these organic structures requires some special chemistry. We need to talk about a type of chemistry that I have never talked about before. The kind of chemistry that can be downright off-field randomly crazy at times. The kind that involves metals. Very often, the transition metals, if you want to be detailed about the whole affair. Prominent members of the transition metals are iron, of course, gold, Platinum, but also nickel, copper, or titanium. We need to talk about something called coordination chemistry. You see, so far in all the episodes of this podcast, I've only talked about bonds where two atoms share an electron each, or one gives another one an electron. In coordination chemistry, we see metals being selfish. Egotistical, selfish insert a word that you like to use there. They just take a pair of electrons, in this case, from any molecule that cares to dance and loan it to them. And you know what? That is a good thing. Coordination chemistry is responsible for some of the most elegant solutions to problems you can find. The entire research field of catalysis, that is the development of catalysts to speed up certain reactions, or in some cases to make them at all possible, would be much less diverse if it wasn't for metal coordination complexes. Just to give you an idea, the 2010 Nobel Prize for Chemistry went to three chemists, two Japanese, one American, for their contributions in developing a group of reactions that revolutionized the synthesis of new products. Their most common tool of choice was a palladium coordination complex acting as a catalyst. Even I, in my short time as a researcher, have used that reaction, or those group of reactions, let's say. But that is not all. Mother Nature uses coordination complexes too, a lot. It is a field known as bioinorganic chemistry, where these metal coordination complexes either have a structural or again catalytic function. And one such example are red blood cells. Alright, so this was a brief introduction into coordination chemistry. I will have to take you on one more little detour before we find our way back to the topic at hand. There is a little piece of French wisdom in chemistry, that any system will find a state of equilibrium, a state of balance, and once you change some parameters, the system will seemingly go completely out of whack, but really, it is just finding its new equilibrium, its new balance. In chemistry, a system is a reaction that can go both ways, so-called reversible reactions. And depending on things like temperature, reagents present in the vicinity, etc., the balancing point may sit on one side of the reaction or the other. The example we will look at is the binding of oxygen to hemoglobin and the release of oxygen from hemoglobin. These are the two sides of the same reaction. Okay. An example here would be the more oxygen is present, the more the balance will be in favor of hemoglobin bonded with oxygen versus non-bonded hemoglobin. And that piece of French wisdom, it is called le chatelier's principle, which is one of the very first things a chemistry student at university will learn about. I almost said le chatelier's principle, which is, is horrible, but it's very hard to switch from French to English accent right away. Sorry for that. So how does what I just talked about fit into our discussion around red blood cells, and how they bring oxygen from lungs to the tissue? Well, the hemoglobin, this metalloprotein that is found so abundantly in red blood cells, is actually a coordination complex made from a protein. The iron that I mentioned, iron 2+, plus, that is two electrons less than metallic iron, is a structurally integral part of that, and it is held in place by these beautifully made big rings where four parts of that ring can give electron pairs. Giving something means that you're a donor, and also here there are four donors to this ring. The technical term is four ligands, ligand from the Latin word ligare, which means to bind something. So it makes sense. They bind to iron. So the hemoglobin throws a ring around the iron to make it form a coordination complex with four places to bind on that ring. The ring has a name, by the way. It's a porphyrin ring. Names, as usual, not really important, but it's for completion's sake. This complex is then held fast inside of it. I mean, that iron is tightly bound in there, that is for sure, and it has a structural importance to the hemoglobin. What I have not said yet is the iron is held in such a way that it is all flat as a molecule, and that would give it a chance to bind some other ligands above and below too. And I am sure you guessed it, that is where the oxygen would come in and bind to it. Oxygen can bind to iron quite well, but, and that is important, it is not as strongly bound as the porphyrin ring of the hemoglobin. And when you think about what we are trying to achieve here, that sounds kind of handy, doesn't it? It means this binding is reversible. And here's how this goes in a simplified way. We breathe air into our lungs, and through the alveoli in the lungs, oxygen is diffusing into our blood, making this aqueous, uh, that is this watery liquid rich in oxygen. The oxygen binds to the free iron binding site on the hemoglobin of the red blood cell. It does so as a ligand. That means it gives a pair of electrons. This happens on most of the hemoglobins in the red blood cells, so many million times, and this cell is then rushed off into the body through the high-speed network known as the cardiovascular system. And it is urged on by the body's pump, the heart. Once in the tissue of random choice, the red blood cell enters the capillaries, tiny blood vessels where oxygen is given off, and carbon dioxide enters the system ready to be taken back to the lungs where it is expelled. That is the mechanism in a nutshell, and it showcases the coordination complex of iron bound by the hemoglobin with the oxygen. But it does not explain how the oxygen is tightly bound to the hemoglobin one minute, and just let go the next. This isn't some kind of erratic human-made economy, but a system following some reliable rules that have existed since the beginning of time, no exceptions. And here's how it goes, and Le Chatelier's principle has something to do with it. It starts off with a Danish physiologist, Christian Bohr, father of Niels Bohr, who noticed how hemoglobin was binding oxygen less well the more acidic the blood became, and the more carbon dioxide was dissolved in the blood. This is known as the Bohr effect. This observation is important because it led researchers to find out that carbon dioxide was mainly dissolved in the water of the blood to bicarbonate by an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase which makes the solution more acidic, and also that hemoglobin can bind CO2 to form something called carbaminohemoglobin, which is much less able to bind oxygen. So what we have here is a parameter that modulates how much oxygen is bound by hemoglobin. I hope you guys can see that this is something that can easily happen, right, in, say, a muscle or an organ. That is the place where energy is used and CO2 is produced and pushed into the blood. On the other hand, there was an observation made that showed that a high concentration of oxygen promotes in turn the breakdown of this CO2 hemoglobin compound called carbaminohemoglobin back to CO2 and hemoglobin as well as converting bicarbonate back to CO2. This is called the Haldane effect, and it achieves effectively the opposite to the Bohr effect, which is what happens in the lungs, and it drives out then the CO2. So if you sum this all up, the Bohr effect and the Haldane effect manage to drive the equilibrium between hemoglobin-bound oxygen and free oxygen in one direction of the reversible reaction or the other, with the help of the presence of CO2 or oxygen in the blood. And that respectively, depending on if you are in the oxygen-consuming organs that push CO2 into the blood system, or In the pulmonary system of the lungs where you have a lot of co2 in the blood and you push a lot of oxygen in through breathing and at the basis of this all sits the coordination chemistry and le chatelier's principle quite right huh it is an amazing system that we have in our bodies but it can be broken There are various ways, and I will talk about two circumstances, one disease and one habit, that can affect the system drastically. And hopefully by the end of it, you will have an appreciation of how breathtaking this entire system really is. If we look first at the red blood cells themselves, there is a genetic disorder called sickle cell disease that causes abnormally formed hemoglobin, which distorts the shape of erythrocytes into a sickle. Here, this effective system of oxygen transfer is severely hampered by the new shape of the red blood cells that frequently causes blockages in blood vessels, leading to many potentially life-threatening situations. This disorder can be most commonly found in African malaria regions, as some people with a specific combination of the genetic disorder and a healthy gene have a natural protection against malaria. And last but certainly not least, the last bit that I wanted to talk about is smoking. We know that it is bad for you, I I think we all know that, but there's actually a chemical component to this habit that you may not be aware of. You see, when you smoke tobacco, a certain portion of the inhaled smoke is carbon monoxide. Because you are burning the tobacco, but it's not hot enough. Uh, If it was, or if it were, you would actually have CO2, two oxygens. But if it's an incomplete combustion, you get also carbon monoxide. Now... Carbon monoxide binds about 230 times stronger to the iron in hemoglobin than oxygen does. And it also hinders other sites in the same protein to be oxygen-bound. Because of that, smoking will hinder over time the effective oxygen uptake by the lungs. I don't know about you guys, but these last two examples were really important for me, because when reading about the chemistry of oxygen transfer, this really put everything for me into context. The complexity of such a system, the fact that it exists, is absolute madness. But also how easy it is to affect it negatively, you see. And with this, I I end this episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it again. If you have comments or ideas for the new topics, please leave comments on Twitter under Eve one or directly to me under chem.podcast at gmail.com or visit my website. If this was too fast to write down, I left the information in the show notes. Also, if you like what you listen to, please rate my show on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks a lot again and take care, folks. You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Thank you for listening.